0: All right, so this morning we're going to be reading Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees, for our captors there asked us for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it, destroy it, down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who pays you back what you have done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated.
1: why did you pick that psalm? That was depressing I picked it, not her and there's a reason for it. Um, good morning I'm glad you're all here. Uh, otherwise, this would be weird for me if you weren't here. Um, I apologize for my voice it's much, much, much better, but it's still kind of suffering so if you hear a random cough, it's just the last throes of my illness. Um, <coughs> we are going to be continuing in the book of Esther this morning. Uh, I was excited when we started the book of Esther. It's, it's, uh, I think it's a fun book to go through. Um, it is attached to a, uh, I was going to say a festival. That's not the word I'm looking for. What's the word I'm looking for? To a feast. That's the word. Uh, attached to a feast, there's a lot of fun things around Purim and, and those things. And so um, it's a fun book to go through, and it's amazing to walk through this story to see God's hand working. Um, we talked a little bit last week. Char did a great job, by the way, of introducing the book, um, some of the controversy around the book throughout its history, uh, its inclusion, the story, and, and how it's, it's structured. And, and, and he was dead on. This feels just like a play. And it feels like many other stories that we've heard are kind of maybe influenced by the story that we have. I love going through narratives. I love going through stories. And I think uh, I was talking to someone beforehand uh, about how stories just resonate. Was it you, Stacy? Yeah, I was talking to Stacey. Re- stories just resonate. With us, I think we share stories all the time. We we um, we think about things in stories. Some of us quote movies, which then you know is part of a story and it's just shared experience and things like that. So I love going through a story because I think it really does help us connect with some of these really big ideas like providence. Right? It was mentioned last week this this idea of God's sovereignty. Or I think uh, you know Esther is one of the best examples of providence. I had a really great quote about providence. Um, I believe this was Jay Vernon McGee who said, "Providence is um, it's God's hand in the glove, and that's what providence is—the the glove of what's going on in our lives. It's the unseen in our lives and what is going on." Um, so it's amazing to see it unfold in this story. I did want to actually go back to that psalm, Psalm 137. Can you imagine singing that together? Sing a song about destruction of different cities and peoples and, <clears throat> and children. I mean, that's, that's intense, right? That's really intense. That song was written during the time of the captivity. So when Israel, I'm sorry, when Judah's enemies were coming in and they were taking the people out of the land, the people are writing this, this psalm saying, How can we sing these songs? How can we be happy? How can we really sing songs of praise to you, God, when this is our situation? We've been taken away. We're in a foreign land. How how? How can we do it? And you see at the end there's a prayer for vengeance. God, where are you? Where have you been? Now, if you look back into the history of of this story, this was something God had warned them about for hundreds of years. If you go back to Deuteronomy, right when they entered the land, God had half the nation go on one mountain, half the nation go on the other mountain, and said, all right, this side yells out the blessings this side yells out the curses. If you follow me, if you obey, if you are in line and step in line with the things that he's laid down, then God would give the blessings. And if you don't, he's going to give the curses. And you could either be on one mountain or the other, but you couldn't be on both. And you couldn't be in the middle. One or the other. And one of those things, and if you're looking for it, it's in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. One of those things is, one of the blessings is, if you are following after me and you are faithful to Yahweh, I'll protect you from your enemies. Your enemies will come against you and they'll be cast out in seven different directions. However, if you disobey, if you go after other gods, you'll receive the curse, which is you will be scattered in seven different directions. And prophet after prophet came to warn, be careful, this is happening, you need to turn around. And they didn't. And so now they are living there. Now, that was the Babylonians. Babylonians did get their judgment. Lord judged Babylon. And now you have the Persians. And the Persians, when you read through this Persian period here, it feels like the Persians are nicer than the Babylonians, right? Cyrus sent them home. Hey, you can, you can go if you want. If you look in history, it actually was very self-serving for Cyrus to do that. Protected against rebels that were building up in that area and things like that. But it's, hey, you can go home. So it feels like, oh, this is much better. But really, were the Persians all that much better? <clears throat> if you look at what they did, what they did to their peoples, there was a, a feeling of, of you know, live and let live and you can, nations can do what they want and send them back home. But there was still unrighteousness just dripping from this empire. And in fact, if you have your Bibles, and you should have your Bibles, but if you don't have your Bibles, I guess you probably have a phone. Uh, go ahead and go to Esther chapter 2. We're going to continue in the story. Today's going to feel a little bit different. We're going to walk through the story, and we're going to pause in certain places, and we're going to kind of highlight and kind of amplify some of the things that we're reading and what we're seeing. So we're going to gonna try to keep the flow of the story going. But our intention today, we're going to go through chapters 2, 3, and 4, and we're going to look at these main characters that are introduced. And so if this was a play, or if this was a movie, or just a story, we're going to meet our protagonists and our antagonists, right, taking you back to 11th grade English, going back to, you know, a story has a protagonist, and their job is to protag in the story, uh, and they're the ones, they're the, they're the heroes, they're the ones, that, they move the narrative forward, and then you have the antagonist, and they're the ones that try to put blocks in the way, they're the ones that cause trouble to do that, and you know what, we need both, otherwise we don't have a story, we just have someone telling you something that happened, and that's not fun, and that's not engaging, so... In a good story, you have both. We're going to be introduced to all of them today. Hopefully now you have found Esther, chapter 2. Let's look at the first few verses. After these things, pause, I didn't get very far. After these things, now, the first chapter, what happened? You don't have to tell me, I'll tell you. In the first chapter, you were introduced to the king, Ashuwaris. Now, the other name for Ashiweres, and Ashuwaris may have actually been a title, more like Caesar, kind of. Um, so we have Ashiaris. Uh He's known as Xerxes. Okay, Xerxes, that's his name. Um, Xerxes was angry because he had a crazy drunken orgy and wanted the queen to come and parade herself around so he could show her off. And they would probably do other things to the queen. And I say that not because to make you feel weird, but I want you to understand this is this is not just the queen decided not to go say hi at a party, a little bit more intense. Some historians think that Vashti was actually pregnant, and so then she hadn't said anything and didn't want to show that she was pregnant for various reasons or whatever. There could be a lot of different things going on. But anyway, the king seemingly overreacts, right? You're not the queen anymore. I'm done with you. I'm going to get rid of you, okay? Now, that was the decree. Law of the Medes and the Persians, that was it. She's no longer the queen. <clears throat> this seems like, man, that guy's harsh. This was not the harshest thing this guy ever did. Okay? He, at this point in time, he is engaging in um, planning a huge campaign against Greece. In fact, that six months where he had all the officials come and all stuff is most likely the planning for that uh, thing. And, of course, lots of drunken orgies at the same time because those apparently go together for Persians. <clears throat> And so they're, they're planning this thing. Uh, this guy, uh, one time they were building a bridge. And uh, they built the bridge, or it may have been almost complete, and then a storm came and kind of washed it away. It was a really intense storm. And so this guy, Xerxes, executes all of the, all of the engineers. Just done. Which, by the way, then I don't know how you're going to build another bridge. But, Kill all the engineers. And that sounds like, wow, that's overreaction. That's not all he did. He also blames the water. It's the water that did it. Stupid water. Insubordinate. So he sent his soldiers out with whips to give 400 lashes to the water. I don't know if they really did it. They're like, yes, sir. And they go back, why would we do that? But anyway, that's, they said they went there, 400 lashes. And then... They got chains, shackles, and they threw it out in the water to shackle the water, and say, you are you have to do what we say. Stupid. But this, I mean, this is this illogical, crazy rage that this king was known for. I and mean, he's nuts. And so this is not the most crazy thing that the king has ever done, to just get rid of the queen. <coughs> Okay. So right there when it says after these things included in that in the timing historically most likely this is when the king went on that Greek campaign. This is where we get that story of the 300 uh, Greek Spartans. Right? Protecting Greece. And in the stories we hear the Spartans are always the good guys because we like the underdog and they won. But Xerxes is on the other side. It was a two-year campaign. So after these things includes him returning, a failure. His big campaign that was going to be the shining star of his legacy, he's a failure. He comes back. He's back in the palace. He's thinking about things. He's like, where's my queen? Oh, yeah. I forgot. Apparently he forgot what he'd done. He thought about, oh, yeah. You see throughout this story, by the way, this guy seems senile because he forgets everything that he tells people to do. But he's, oh, I forgot that. And we don't know if if his servants were just scared. They go, we have an idea. We have an idea. Okay? Um, Don't freak out. What we'll do is we'll have a beauty pageant. We'll just do that. We'll find another queen. We'll do it. Right? Okay. So that's the next setup. That's the setup for us to be introduced to our next characters. By the way, the king, even though he's mentioned like 170 times, he's not the main character. He's just kind of a catalyst. He's almost like the setting. The king does these things, and all the other characters then interact with those things. And that's kind of important. The point of the story isn't the king and his whim. The point is what actually comes about in spite of what the king wants or what he expects. All right. Uh, after these things, when the anger of King Ashwares had abated, he remembered Vashti, what he had done, way he had decreed against her. And I want you to remember that decree is important because when a decree is made, it cannot be undone. He couldn't just say, well, I forgive Vashti. Let's bring her back. And he couldn't just say, I'll do another decree that just cancels it out. It doesn't work like that. You can't do it. So he has to find another queen. That's uh, a good thing to remember as we move forward here. Uh, Let's go down verses 5 and 6. We're introduced to our first protagonist, our first hero here. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away uh, with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, this is a semi-confusing verse because if we believe that it's Mordecai that was carried away, that was like 137 years before this, and he's not—he's not 160. So, um, what it is is that his 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 father, his grand, his great grandfather, was carried away at that time. Daniel was carried away in the first captivity. His grandfather and Ezekiel were carried away in the second, and Jerusalem was uh, destroyed in the third. Um, and they happened in succession, a number of years in between. And so they were, they were brought there. And this is, this is what we want to point out here. His great-grandfather may have been one of those men who sang Psalm 137. They were not happy to be carried away. He grew up in captivity, if you want to put it that way. Even though they were allowed to have normal lives and set up shops as merchants and carry on with their um, different crafts and things, they were still not there by their own volition, they were given Persian names. They were expected to live like Persians. Now, thanks to the ministry that God allowed Daniel to have, they were free to, to worship, but they had a reputation. These guys somehow are able to not worship in the same way that we are. Um, but they were, they were seemingly set apart. And that's how they, they'd lived for, for generations. And so now we get to learning who Mordecai really is. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For he had neither father, or I'm sorry, for she had neither father nor mother. The the young woman, a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so he raised her. Now here's a big question. What are they doing there? Why are they there? Cyrus had already given the decree. You can all go back. So why are they still there? Relatively few Jews went back to the land. Many of them stayed. Now, the Lord actually did want them to go. They want, he wanted them to return to the land, to rebuild, to be there, to be his people, where he had called them to be. And so whether it was the decision of, him or his father, don't know what that dynamic is, they were still in Babylon. Which is interesting to think about because then that puts them in a different situation. They had directly gone against the direct will of God. They're in Babylon. And it's interesting to see that because normally you go like, oh, that means, they're, that means they're sinners and God's not going to use them. And that's what makes this story so beautiful. And that's what makes the providential part of the story so Amazing they're there. Why are they there? Because they were not doing what they were supposed to do in a general sense. Now, God would not have said it's good for them to sin. However, even though they had, God is still going to use them. And that is the beautiful piece of providence that's in this story. I love how the Net Bible puts verse 5 where it's, it, it, it renders it, now there happened to be a Jewish man in Susa. It was on it was accident. There's just this dude there. Happened to be there. Happened to be Jewish. It's almost tongue-in-cheek, if you want to put it that way. Just happened to, to be that way. You'll have a lot of those instances in the story. <clears throat> so as we continue, let's look at verse, uh, we looked at verse 7 already they hear about, uh, Mordecai and, and Esther hear about this, this edict, that there's supposed to be this competition, is that the right word? Competition between women um, competing with beauty uh, to be the queen. And so she goes. we don't know if she was really forced, if she was taken or if it was a volunteer kind of thing. You know, we don't know if she volunteered to tribute or how that looked, but she, um, she ends up going there. Now, if you look in here, look at verse uh, 12, I believe it is. Now, when uh, the turn came for young women to go to King Ashiwaris, after being 12 months under the regulation for women, since this is the regular period for beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, there was a 12-month beautification process that they had to go through. I don't want anyone complaining about their wife taking too long <laughs> to get ready. Don't do it. 12 months, 12 months. Um, or the opposite could be true. I don't know you. You're, you're, you're what you do in the morning uh, to get ready. But uh, 12 months, 12 months months. They took this seriously. But this is also a really long process, and honestly, with the King's track record, I probably forgot about it. I had to be reminded that it was actually happening. Now, what's interesting is it says that there, he, she was taken with a young woman, and some of, your, um, some of your Bibles may say virgin, and actually, that word young woman and virgin is kind of the same. It's, well, not kind of. It is the same in Hebrew. Uh, it just is based on the context. What's interesting is, is sometimes they were still using the word virgin after they had been part of this group. This group was, you, you just call him a harem. The king could choose any of these girls that he wanted at any time. He just called for them. And it really is what it sounds like. Now harem is, in, in Hebrew, harem is, it just means um, forbidden. So these women were set apart, forbidden from, any, from anyone else. They were set apart. They could only be for the king. Uh, but even when she arrives there, they identified her beauty. It says in there that the attendants recognized this. They saw she was beautiful. And the one thing Mordecai told her, don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Just don't do it. There was a lot of anti-Semitism floating around there. And I'm sure Mordecai said, we don't want to screw up our chances, this thing, just because you tell them what neighborhood he came from, what family you came from, those sort of things. So they don't know that Esther is actually Jewish. I want to go back a little bit. How is she introduced? She's not introduced as Esther. She's introduced as Hadassah. That's her name. That's her Hebrew name. It means myrtle. We'll go with Hadassah. But it's, uh, she's named after this beautiful white flower. That's, that's her name. Now, what's interesting is we can actually go there. Because when, when we talk about who's Esther... We kind of add in all the other stuff, right? But think about this. Who is Hadassah? Who is she? How does she grow up? How... She's, she is just a normal Jewish girl. Nothing special about her. And when I say that, I mean she's not, she's not a prophet. She's not a priest. She's not from the tribe of Levi. She's not royalty, at least not yet. She has nothing special about her, if you want to put it that way. The only thing that they would notice is she's incredibly beautiful in every way. Right? I've heard the joke, you know, Ruth is amazing because she had uh, such strong conviction and she was a hard worker, and Esther just did it with with her looks. And that's a weird thing to say, but if you think about it, this is part of that providential piece. She was beautiful to look at. She was a beauty to behold, and everyone who saw her said it. And so the Lord is going to use that. But as far as who is she, <clears throat> she grew up in a in a home that they could go back to the land, but didn't. Mordecai seems like a faithful man, but somehow she is able to say or not mention she's, you know, Jewish, and everyone believes it. So she wasn't set apart. She didn't have a menorah sticker on her cart or anything like that. She you know, she didn't Vocalize her faith, and she flew under the radar. No one knew. So that kind of tells you a little bit about, of who Hadasa really is, because she could just use her Persian name, "I'm Master," and everyone bought it. Sometimes we have this idea that the people that God uses are some are ultra spiritual, ultra special just incredibly gifted in all these different ways, have this incredible godly reputation, don't make mistakes, don't sin, and if they do, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing big, it's, they can repent of it, and man, do they repent of those smalls. We build this thing up where the people that God use are somehow separated from people that we are. That's not Hadassah. She lived her life, and she, I'm sure she respected Yahweh, but... Man, it kind of seems like she's kind of nominally Jewish. She kind of rolls with it. She just kind of lives a normal Persian life. You know, with with Jewish stuff still at home, but she doesn't live it outside, really, because no one called it into question. And I want to highlight that because some of us can feel like that, and we actually talk ourselves out of serving the Lord. We talk ourselves out of anything else. Well, this is just who I am. I'm just going to do this and kind of live. And I don't share my faith because I don't feel like I'm qualified to do it. Or I don't do these other things. I don't do these these volunteer things because I don't feel like I I can. Hadassah allowed herself to be used by God step by step. This was one of the first steps. And it feels like a weird one. Go and take 12 months in a spa. But that's what she did. <clears throat> so all these things are going on. And then we get to the middle of chapter 2. When uh, the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the women, advised. She didn't, so they had access to everything. All the jewelry, all the clothes, all Everything. And she didn't use any of it. Just asked the advisor, what, what do you think I should, I should do? And she just did that. And the thought is, is that instead of being like a peacock, she went in very simply. And this is one of the things that stood out. It was her natural beauty. Set her apart from everyone else. When she goes into the presence of the king, the king is just astounded. Now, we don't know exactly how that was, And yeah, super awkward. She probably had to parade around naked and display herself. That's actually part of it. And it sounds super weird. And I say it because, man, that feels weird to say, like, God had a plan for her to do that weird thing. But she did, and God gave her favor because the king just fell in love with her. We don't know if she spoke, talked. We don't know any of those things. But when that meeting happened, even though the king had access to any woman he wanted, he loved Esther and loved her especially. That has to be one of the providential pieces that God has placed in the story. Because God makes her, God wants her to be queen. And the king makes her queen. Just from that one meeting, that was it. What we hear next Probably some time passes. This is now when the young women or the virgins gathered together a second time. Mordecai was sitting in the gate. Sitting in the gate was actually a government position. It meant that you were a government official. Lot did that in Sodom. Um, Boaz goes to the gate, and that's where they have the conversation about Ruth. This position, sitting in the gate, means that you had an official capacity. And so Mordecai is sitting there. Nah, he, she, she may have vouched for him. And so he got this position. Is there some nepotism there? Maybe. Mordecai's a good guy, so it's not that bad. He's qualified, or seemingly so. But while he's there, just one day he happens to overhear two other eunuchs who are working over here, and he hears them plot to kill the king, which sounds big and scary, but it probably happened all the time. He gives word to Esther. Esther tells the king, and the king says, Oh, my goodness, let's kill them. Very swift justice, those two guys hang. And she makes sure that Mordecai is given credit. If we look at the end of chapter 2, it says, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. He says, I want this written down. was a big deal. And then seemingly the king forgot about it because, man, I really think he has dementia. He should talk to somebody. But he just kind of, yeah, he forgets. So we see the character of Mordecai. Because again, let's go back. He's a captive. He should not really care if the king dies. Right? If they really were feeling that way. If they really felt like captives. But he, he calls it in. And the king lives. And so you already see his attitude. He's, he's wanting to do the right thing. But I think the next chapter really shows it. We're introduced to our antagonist in the next chapter. This is the bad guy. Haman. Haman is not a cool dude, yet somehow has risen to a rank of even possibly prime minister of the area. Whether it was regional or empire-wide, it doesn't really matter because Haman, when he shows up, everybody has to bow. What's interesting in here is something we probably skip right past. After these things, King Hashuweris promoted Haman the Agagite the son of Hamadatha. And advanced him and set a throne, set his throne above all the officials that were with him. What does it say he is? He says he is a what? Haman the Agagite. Normally we just skip over those things, but who's Agag? Anybody remember? Sorry. Yeah, this goes all the way back to First Samuel. This should be a little key for us in our history. We should know this. And little Jewish kids are hearing the story throughout the ages. They're like, oh, we know who that is. Um, Agag, First Samuel 15, Saul goes up to fight against all of the, the different enemies that Israel has because he's been made king. Well, he goes to the Amalekites, and God says very specifically, kill them all. We don't want anyone left in this tribe. Now, the Amalekites are offspring of Esau. Their offspring of the Edomites, which actually takes us back to the psalm that we read today, 137. So the Amalekites, uh, they fought against the Amalekites. Saul won, but he doesn't kill the king. Brings the king out, which was fairly common. Uh, You could ransom him. You could uh, set up tribute or or something, but he just doesn't do it. Samuel finds out. Says, uh, did you kill everything? Everybody? Well, no. Still have the king. They brought the king out. King's actually pretty arrogant because he thinks he's survived. And basically, he comes out all cheerful, waiting to be negotiated with or set up. And one of the uh, favorite verses of most junior high boys, um, it says that Samuel took the king's sword and did what? Hacked Agag to pieces. He killed Agag. Agag. Samuel did. said, that's what you were supposed to do. And basically, because of that, because of this, this extreme disobedience, uh, Saul loses favor. And then after that, we're introduced to David. So he gets happy after that. But Agag is hacked to pieces. Haman is a, um, an Agagite, which means he is of the lineage of the king. <clears throat> what tribe is Mordecai from? You remember, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. What tribe was Saul from? Also from the tribe of Benjamin. We have this really interesting repeat of this engagement here. Mordecai, the offspring of Benjamin. Haman, offspring of Agag. Here we go. It's set up again. These cycles come back through. We see these repeated things. Haman comes by, Mordecai is in the gate, everyone bows. And it's not a bow, it's not like a, you know, karate kid. Hi, this is just formality. This is get down on your face, bow. So when Mordecai is standing there, because he refuses to bow to Haman, he sticks out like a Mordecai. Uh, He stands out like a sore thumb, just standing there. Which is really funny because this goes right along with another story that we know, roughly the same time period, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego also won't bow, stick out like three thumbs. Now they all knew that, they all knew that story, they all knew all these things, right? So Mordecai standing is not just, oh, I have a bad hip or, I mean, he can't really get around it. This is all, This is defiance. And it's pointed out there, <clears throat> and so Haman sees him and is mad. He is angry that someone would defy him, especially someone sitting in the gate. He goes to talk to him. and This is how we know this is not just Mordecai just flippantly doing this, because why are you not bowing? He says, I'm a Jew. And that should have been a signal. We don't bow. We don't bow to anybody except for Yahweh. He didn't know how to say it. They all knew it, and this is where you can get into this piece. They never mention Yahweh in this book, but they are making choices that show that they are still aligned with Yahweh. This would have led to, could have possibly led to his death. Haman is just so angry, oh that Mordecai, and he's so angry. He's, like, I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get him. I am gonna, I'm gonna kill him. But he realizes he can't do that because then. If he singles out that one guy, then everyone in that area is not going to like him. I think it's going to be bad for him. So he says, you know what? Here's my solution. I'll kill all of them. Every single Jew, kill them all. That's my plan. Now, it says here that he um, cast lots. Most likely, he went to a professional. You don't leave this up to chance. He went to, probably went to a, a soothsayer or a witch or someone. One of them to do it. They cast the lots, and guess what? He said, what day should we kill all the Jews? And it happened to go to the last month of the year. Oh, he's got to wait all year. Okay, we want to do this right. Can you not see the providence of God to give that much time for the rest of the plan to form? God sometimes is in the dice. So he's got this whole year to plan. So that means mm, every day that year, he's got to go past that gate and watch Mordecai stand there in the gate. Got to kill that guy. So he's getting more and more angry the whole year. This is the guy. This is the bad guy. Now he takes this plan, he goes to the king, and he says, King, there's some people that I really think you should put on your list to kill. You know he had one. He said, I think you should wipe out all the Jews because they're just ultra-defiant. You know they are. And he trusts Haman, so he basically gives him a a blank check. He gives him a signet ring. You write it up. Sounds good. You write it up, put my seal on it, send it out. Now, what's interesting here is there was an actual day that was in this decree. It was translated into all the languages of the empire and sent everywhere. Because there's going to be one day, we're just going to do it all at once. Let's get it done and over with. Kill every Jew, which then also included Israel, Jerusalem. That was part of the empire. So unbeknownst to all of them, everywhere else, they're all gonna die. They potentially didn't even know. Mordecai knew. The people in the town knew. So that you can't keep those things secret. So the whole town goes into uproar, the whole city about this thing. Haman goes home, puts his feet up, has a couple cocktails, feels pretty good about himself. That's Haman. That's our bad guy. And if we were celebrating Purim, every time you hear the name Haman, everybody would boo. Boo. Haman is the evil guy. This notion to kill the Jews, this isn't the first time Definitely isn't the last time. What we see here is we see God setting up the pieces. We see Satan in the mix. We see that there is much more than what's just stated right here. Much more. Much more going on. This is providence. What I love about this part is we see the evil of Haman and we see the faithfulness of Mordecai. Every day, Haman gets more angry Every day, Mordecai makes another choice. Every day, I'm going to stand for a whole year. I'm going to stand today. Next day, I'm not going to bow down. Next day, still not going to do it. He makes a conscious decision every day to be a faithful man. Be faithful to Yahweh, and that has to embolden him. It has to be pretty exciting every time he does it, and nothing happens has to build his faith and God is doing that for a purpose for a reason. Some of us man, we need to be Mordecai. Who is Mordecai? Mordecai is a guy who didn't go home, go back home when he could have. He's stuck around, but you know what? When he has the option, when he has the choice, he stands and he takes it. He does it. That's Mordecai. That's the good guy. One of our protagonists. We get to chapter 4. Play this out a little bit more. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud, bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. You couldn't enter uh, that place if you were in mourning. It was just a rule. So he went right up to the gate. He did not hide this fact that he was in mourning. Esther hears about it. Esther's informed. She says, stop. Don't. Let me send you clothes. Stop doing that. What do we see? Hadassah. Still trying to not draw attention. Don't, Don't do that. Let me send you clothes. Let me do that. Mordecai informs her. Right? Through, through these messages. What's gonna happen? He even sends documentation. I want you to see what this looks like. Sent that to her. And he Mordecai says, You you have to go. You have to go. You have to talk to the king. You're the only one who can do this. So now Esther has a choice. Now think about this. Esther's there, she's the queen. No one knows she's a Jew. So she has a choice. Anybody who just goes to the king could be instantly killed. You don't just go talk to the king. They took that very seriously. He potentially could say, no, I'll allow you to speak, but apparently that didn't happen very often because they were pretty sure they are going to die. She says, if I go, I will probably die. I can't do this. And there's Mordecai every day saying, I'm going to stand. He's already been making that choice every day. He says to her, he encourages her. Side note, she's the queen of Persia. And she still talks to her cousin for advice. That also tells you the character of Mordecai but she still went to him to talk about these things anyway. So he says, you know, uh, in fact, I'll read it. They told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He says, you might think that that's an option. It won't be. You won't escape. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews in another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Here's a Mordecai saying You know, you're in the position to, to help. If you don't, the providential nature of God, He will provide someone else. So don't think you're so special. You somehow are going to escape this just because you're the queen not going to happen but you know what god is faithful the jews will receive salvation do you know why god had already promised it and if god had promised it it's going to happen he says i don't know how and i don't know who but our salvation will rise from someone else he says but Verse, uh, verse 14. Sorry, lost my spot there. It says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But if you, I'm sorry, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What if this was the whole reason for everything? All the embarrassment, all the struggle, all the stuff. The year-long spa treatments, all the things, this whole situation. And Mordecai could have also been thinking, we could already be in the land. We could be done. But you know what? We would have no idea that this is happening. We would have no idea that something like this could take place for such a time as this. How do you, have you thought about that? Maybe this is the whole reason that you are where you are. One of the things about providence, God uses providence oftentimes to lead people who will not be directly led. Esther, it doesn't seem like she necessarily was intensely faithful to Yahweh. So providentially, God moves her into a place where she has the choice. The question is, what is she going to choose? Mordecai's right. For such... The time is this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. So this is going through letters. So there's some time to think before replies, right? Okay. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days or nights. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him to do. She had a moment. She thought about it. She made her choice. If I die, I die. She knows this is the shot. This is the one chance that she has to be used by God to fulfill his purposes. So Hadassah decides to ally herself with Yahweh in the biggest way she ever has in her whole life. Jesus talks about this, not specifically that. But he talks about this idea. He says, if you deny me before others, I'll deny you before my father. This is a very intense statement from Jesus. But think of it that way. She has an opportunity to bring this up before the king. This, is an, this, this honors Yahweh. Hey, I'm Jewish. I follow Yahweh, and my people are in danger. Right? This has happened over and over and over again where God uses someone in some position to help. Right? Moses, Joseph, Daniel. God loves to use individuals. And so I want to I really bring it back to this. Who is Hadassah? She is a normal Jewish girl nominally Jewish, who makes a big decision to go all in. And for a lot of us, we probably are not in that position. We're probably not queen of Persia, I'm guessing. Um, We don't have those kind of opportunities. We have a lot of those category of opportunities all the time. And a lot of us, we talk ourselves out of it. We say, we're not special. This is not us. Why would I speak? Why would I speak up? Why would I say these things? is because maybe it's for such a time as this. Maybe that's why you work where you work. Maybe that's why that whole side of your family still talks to you, but nobody else. Maybe that's why you have that friend next door. Maybe that's why. Maybe for such a time as this, and maybe it's time for us to stop thinking that God can't use us and actually allow ourselves to be used Maybe it's it's time for us to stop trusting in providence and start trusting in what God has directly told us to do. Maybe it's time for us to actually open our mouths. And I think that's the example that we get, both from Esther and Mordecai. So I ask you, who are you? Are you Harassah? Are you nominally there? Are you are you Mordecai where you make a decision and your faith grows? And so you continue to make a stand and you encourage others to make a stand. Who are you? And are you going to open your mouth for such a time as this? Father, we thank you for these stories that you give us. Thank you for the details. Thank you for, Lord, the backdrop. That you give. Thank you, God, that you give us accounts in your word of relatable people, people that we can look at and identify with, see the examples that they gave, and see bad examples. Lord, as we see Saul and the decisions that he made, Lord, I pray that we would be emboldened to make the right decision at the right time. Lord, I pray that we would evaluate where you have brought us by direct command or by providence that we might make the proper decision for such a time as this. We love you. We trust you. We want to follow you in a deeper way, Lord, and I pray you lead all of us. Lord, in in your will, we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.